Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed. Anybody who knows anything about Christadelphians will know that we are keen Bible students. And one aspect of Bible study that we are particularly keen on is Bible prophecy. You'll find many videos and talks based around the subject of Ezekiel 38, Zechariah 14, the book of Revelation and so forth. This particular podcast has an interesting twist. It looks at the question, can Pope Francis save the EU? Now on the surface that might seem a little bit strange in relation to the Bible. Let's hear what the speaker has to say on this particular subject. Because God's word shows that the nations of Europe in their final phase will be under the influence of a religious power that grew out of the Roman Empire. The Pope promotes European Christian heritage to keep the EU together. But Jesus will soon come to replace all human rulers with the Kingdom of God on Earth. So, Let's tune in, let's listen to this talk, and if you've got any comments or messages, please leave them for us, and we'll do our best to listen or read your comments. Thank you very much. Enjoy the podcast. Can Pope Francis save the EU? Well, Europe is in trouble. Europe was already in trouble, and she knew it. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And it caught the union in disarray. Constant disagreements are hampering communal progress. There's economic strife, an inability to agree on foreign policies, divided views on defence and immigration issues. And then there's the recent spirit quencher of Brexit, which left a deflated union struggling to catch its breath. And politicians and analysts from around the globe have warned that Europe might break. And so too, as you may guess from the title, has the Pope of Rome. And so tonight we're going to explore this question, can Pope Francis save the EU? And we're going to find that others are also trying to to help out, none the least of which is the recently appointed Asala von der Leyen, President of the European Commission. But most importantly, tonight, throughout the presentation, we're going to discover some of the ancient roots of these two entities, the papacy and the European Union, and find their most fascinating trajectory predicted in the prophecies of the Bible. Now, as we are a Bible-believing community, and this is um, a a Bible-based presentation, we are going to ask for God to bless our meeting this evening, so I'm just going to offer an opening prayer now. Great God of the heavens above, we thank thee that thou hast given to us thy word, the Bible, and that within its pages thou hast given us so many things to study. Especially at this time, we thank thee for the prophecies given a long, long time ago which include exact and precise predictions of events which are happening in our world today. As we explore the events happening in Europe, 
We pray, our God, that thou wilt help us to understand these things in the light of Bible prophecy. We therefore thank thee for this time and ask for thy blessing in the name of Jesus Christ, thy Son. Amen. Okay, just a short overview of tonight then. We're going to begin by looking at the current situation in Europe, and then we're going to search for a biblical framework in which to understand those events and see if the Bible comments on uh, Europe's current situation. Based on what we find, we're going to form a set of prophetic expectations, things that we might uh, expect to happen in the area of Europe. And then we're going to take a further look at what's happening around us in today's world. And finally, we'll reach our answer regarding the future of the EU and the Pope and his involvement in that. Well, what is the current situation? Europe recently elected a new president of the European Commission. The Commission is the executive branch of the EU. It deals with the overall governance of the Union. It's responsible for making and implementing laws and also for developing the budget and, and, and making sure that is spent correctly. The body also represents the, the Union on an international level. Well, a recent article reflected upon the new election of uh, th their recent president. And this article was published by The Spectator in the UK. And I just want to take a few quotes from, from this article because it gives us a really good overview of Europe's current situation. It was written by a professor of international economic policy from the Princeton University. His name is Ashoka Modi. And the article I'm just going to place on the screen there was titled, The EU is in trouble, and Asala von der Leyen is the wrong person to rescue it. And he goes and surveys a few of the things which are going wrong in Europe to support what he has asserted in his title. The article opens, Asala von der Leyen was an unloved choice to replace Jean-Claude Juncker as the next president of the European Commission. Modi then goes on to comment on von der Leyen's poor performance in her previous job as German Defence Minister. She's been blamed for the catastrophic situation with the German army. And a member of the German federal government summarised the situation as, it's good for the army that she's going. She certainly hasn't been held in high regard with her work there. Modi then continued, von der Leyen received the European Parliament's endorsement by the narrowest of margins. And he said that there was a lot of confusion around her appointment and that this confusion was a, a microcosm of the inability of the Union to act with a common voice in the common interest. So profound is this unity, this, this disunity, sorry, facing the Union, that on von der Leyen's recent release of the EU's next budget, running from 2021 through to 2027, one of the senior EU officials pronounced the blood will flow after von der Leyen had left the room. Why do you say that? Well, the situation in Europe currently is that the northern states, who give a lot more than they take, are saying that they don't want to dig deeper, they don't want to give out more cash towards the union, whereas the southern states are fighting to retain the fiscal benefits that they've enjoyed. So you can see why there's, it's going to be very hard for them to reach an agreement. 
Professor Modi then went on to disparagingly comment on the, the corruption in the EU's uh, budget spending. He says that corruption resides at the very top. National leaders use, sub, use the subsidies they're given to enrich friends, political allies and family members. And the European Parliament is complicit, he says. It summarily dismissed the latest effort to roll back some of the payments that were doled out and simply put, too many influential people have their privileged hands in the till. He goes on to, to describe a whole host of other things which are happening in the union, um, showing the way in which it's really falling apart. But for now, I just want to summarise the rest of his article with one of his little subtitles. He said, Europe is a fragmented continent in decline. That's a very helpful little phrase to remember. I don't intend for you to remember everything else I mentioned there, just, just that Europe is now a fragmented continent in decline. Well, that's Professor Modi's point of view on it. Is that what other reports are saying? And, or, or is this just like a current crisis? Well, if we go back to 2016, the President of the European Council, Mr Donald Tusk, said that the risk of the EU breakup is real. The following year, in 2017, the Bloomberg put out another paper saying that the euro could break up. They said that talk about the breakup of the euro is fashionable again. Again, the following year, Europe's future hangs in the balance. And in 2019, CNN put out an article stating that Brexit was just a distraction. Now, Europe is faced with a hellish 2020, they said. They went on to comment that during the Brexit, the EU was forced to pay less attention to other problems amongst its member states. Problems that present a far greater long-term threat to the European project than Brexit ever could. Brexit was bad for the Union, sure, but CNN is saying there's a lot worse happening. And then, of course, coronavirus landed on top of all of that. And you can see there a map of some of the countries in Europe which have been affected by the virus. Over a million people in Europe having been infected and having dramatic economic consequences as Europe went into lockdown. Europe wasn't in a place where they could survive that very well. And certainly many have shared the Pope's fear when he said that the future of Europe is hanging in the balance. Coronavirus poses a, th a risk so great that it could mark the end of the European Union if mishandled. So the Pope is certainly concerned. Well, in light of all of that, why would we turn to the Bible for an answer? Well, the Bible puts out a claim to us in Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9 and 10, God says, I am God and there is none else. I am God, there is none like me. He's saying that he is the only God and that he can declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. So God tells us that he's the only one 
who can accurately predict the future. From ancient times, he can tell us what's going to happen today. So tonight we're going to put that, that claim to the test. Does the Bible talk about Europe? If so, what does it have to say on the future of Europe? And how does it talk about the Roman Catholic Church? Well, you may be interested to know that Europe, or the EU, actually comes at the end of a long list of empires prophesied of in the Bible. And so our answer tonight is going to come in in two stages. Firstly, we're going to uncover a broad framework that God gives us of world history. And then we'll see where Europe fits into that framework. And to discover that framework, I need to take you back to Daniel chapter 2. And if you've got a Bible, it's going to be really, really helpful tonight. So feel free to to jump up and and grab one if you haven't already. Because we're going to refer to two chapters in the book of Daniel, and then later on we'll go to one chapter in the book of Revelation. And you'll find it helpful just to be able to follow along there. Now, in going to the book of Daniel, we're opening a book written 2,600 years ago, around the year 600 BC. It's a historical work written by the prophet Daniel and recorded here in the Old Testament of the Bible. Daniel was a prophet of God, and together with his fellow countrymen, he was taken into captivity into the land of Babylon in around the year 606 BC. Now, Daniel was taken by the king of Babylon, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, and he was committed to a course in, in learning the, the wisdom and the tongue or the, the arts and sciences of the Chaldeans so that he could stand before Nebuchadnezzar. But in Daniel chapter 2, we find in in the first verse of Daniel 2 that this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. This dream was so disturbing that the king couldn't sleep. And so in verses 2 to 13 of the chapter, he called all of the wise men to, to tell him the dream and to interpret it. But they miserably failed. Now, by this stage in his education, Daniel was counted as one of the wise men, but because he hadn't finished his degree, he wasn't initially consulted. He was now under a death warrant, together with all the wise men of Babylon. The king said, if you cannot tell me the dream and the interpretation, then you are going to die. And so in verses 14 to 18 of of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel prayed to his God, And he asked him to tell him the dream as well as the interpretation. Well, God gave Daniel an answer to his prayer. And the dream is recorded for us in verses 31 to 34 of Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel came into the king Nebuchadnezzar. And as we read Daniel's description of the dream, I'm going to put up here on the the screen a picture of what Daniel, and initially what Nebuchadnezzar saw in that dream. So Daniel chapter 2, reading from verse 31 through to verse 35. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. 
This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. Nebuchadnezzar looks and he sees this humongous man in front of him. It's a terrifying image. And the image's head was made of fine gold. And then his breast and arms were made of silver. His belly and thighs were of brass. His legs of iron and his feet were part of iron and part of clay. Daniel says in verse 34, Thou sawest until that a stone was cut out without hands, and it smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake it in pieces. Then was the iron and the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold, broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has seen. What does it all mean? We don't have to look very far because from verse 36 onwards, Daniel immediately interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. So let's keep reading to find out what it means. Verse 36, this is the dream, said Daniel, and we will tell the interpretation thereof to the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom and power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell and the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, he has given them into thine hand and he has made thee ruler over them all. Thou, Nebuchadnezzar, art this head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar is told that he and his empire are represented by the head of gold. Now I say his empire because in verse 39 he's told that he was going to be followed by another kingdom inferior to him. So Nebuchadnezzar and his empire were one day going to fall and another kingdom would arise. And then a third kingdom of brass which should bear rule over all the earth. So this image that Nebuchadnezzar could see actually represented world empires. And the first was his own. It was represented by the head of gold, and that, we're told in verse 38, represents the empire of Babylon. Then there was another empire. It was inferior to Nebuchadnezzar's and represented by silver. This was the Medo-Persian Empire, which, when we look to the history books, conquered the kingdom of Babylon. That was then followed in turn by the Empire of Greece, under the uh, leadership of Alexander the Great, who conquered the Persian Empire. But do we, do we really have to go to history alone to get the answer for who these, these empires were? I mean, this is written in 600 BC. Do we have to wait until history occurs to know what it's actually prophesying? Well, no, we don't. If you've got a pen and, and paper with you, just jot down Daniel chapter 8 and verses 20 to 21. We're not going to go there tonight. It's a whole other vision. But if you want to find where these two empires that would follow Babylon, Medo-Persia and Greece, where those two empires are named, you will find that in Daniel chapter 8 
and verses 20 and 21. So God doesn't leave it all to guesswork. He tells us specifically that the head of this empire, of this, of this image, represents the empire of Babylon. The breast and arms represent the Medo-Persians. The belly and thighs represent the Greek empire which would follow. And then finally, in verse 40, we read of the fourth kingdom, which would be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Following the Greek empire, there would be another great empire rise, an empire which would conquer the then known world. And again, when looking to history, we find that the Roman Empire followed the Greek. Well, perhaps you may be unfamiliar with the first two empires mentioned there. Certainly, a few years ago, I had to do a a bit of research to to learn about who they are and and when they existed. And talking to to friends and colleagues, I often find they, they may not have heard of them. But the last two empires on the screen, there's no question as to certainly the fact that they existed and also the impact that they've had in our English society today. All you have to do is is study a bit of language or medicine and you'll find that so many of the roots of our words come from these empires and their languages. That's just one example of the influence of these two world empires. And all you need to do really is is grab a historical encyclopedia off the shelf and you'll find that each of these empires are are mentioned in history. And they were indeed great world empires of their time. Well, where did this leave us? You'll see on the the right-hand column of the screen, we've put dates next to each of those empires. And the Roman Empire, the city of Rome and its empire, fell in the year 476 AD. Now, we'll have a little bit more to say on when exactly Rome fell and how it fell a little later on. But the point of that slide is that we're evidently no longer in the time period of the legs. Each of these kingdoms have come and gone, and and, and now we are sometime after the legs. And so... I'm going to suggest to you now and and show in due course that we are now in the period of the the feet and toes of the image. Particularly, I'd suggest, in in the the very last time period of of the toes. We'll we'll explain that in due course. But for now, here's a series of maps which show how each of these empires spread in the then-known world. As you can see... The territory of Persia was far greater than that of Babylon. And then Greek, the, the Greek Empire was also extremely large. And then the Roman Empire basically encircled the Mediterranean Sea. And you'll notice, or you'll recall from reading verse 39, that the empire which was going to follow Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was told that it would be inferior to him and to his empire. But when you look at that map, doesn't look to be the case. All of the empires that followed Babylon were, were larger than Babylon's empire. 
So, in what way was it inferior to him? Well, we might say, maybe it was in its duration. But if I put this next slide up, you'll see that the duration of all of the other empires far exceeded the duration of the Babylonian Empire. So it can't be that either. But you'll see from the the right-hand column that the way in which each of the following empires were inferior was in the quality of their governance. You see, Babylon was ruled by an absolute dictator. Whatever he said was law. And if he wanted to change the law, he could do it. Medo-Persia was a little different. The king's word was still authoritative, still took absolute authority. However, he had to obey the law himself. And by the time you get down to, to the Roman Empire, the emperors were answerable to the Senate and were occasionally deposed by them. So you can see this gradual decline in, in the strength or the authority with which each of the empires is governed. And that's going to become relevant a little later on. So where does this leave us in our question as to uh, Europe, her origins and her destiny? Well, now we need to look a little closer at the feet and toes of this image. So verses 41 through to 43 describe the feet and the toes of the image which Nebuchadnezzar saw. In verse 41 we read, Whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, partly made of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, and there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest that the iron was mixed with miry clay. And as for the toes of the feet, they were part of iron and part of clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken." And whereas thou sawest that the iron was mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. All right, so what's that telling us about the feet and the toes? Well, I've just put up a few points there to to summarise what we can glean from these verses. Firstly, the feet and toes are made of iron and clay. Now, that's completely different to any of the preceding empires. All of them were one single metal. This is a mixture. You've got the iron and it's mixed in with clay. So this is a very, very different type of empire. Secondly, the empire, we would say, must be part Roman because we've seen the the iron before. The iron was in verse 40 and that represented the Roman Empire. So something about this fifth phase of the image, the the, the feet and the toes here, something about it is Roman. In fact, we might say that the fifth phase is not actually a fifth empire at all. It's really a continuation of the fourth empire. After all, it's, it's got the iron and something's been added in. The clay has been mixed in to this, to, to the iron legs to make iron feet. Uh, iron and clay feet, sorry. The next thing we observe is that clay that's been mixed in is extremely fragile. 
And so the strength of the feet comes from the iron alone. And we're told that in verse 41. There shall be in it of the strength of the iron. Now thinking back to the gradual decline in quality of, or in value of the metals that we mentioned before, clay would have to be utterly useless if iron and bronze were, were of less value than silver and gold. Clay is no, has no value whatsoever. And so this empire, following the trend, would have extremely poor and dysfunctional governance. The empire, we're told in verse 42, actually does struggle with internal division. The kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Perhaps this is reminding you of, of something that we heard not so long ago in our opening remarks. Well, in verse 42, the toes are mentioned. Now, I don't know about you, but most of us have ten toes. And so we would assume, surmise, that there's going to be... This Roman Empire is going to be mixed with the clay and is going to become ten separate entities. But each of these ten separate entities is still bound together by the iron in the feet. We're then told that in verse 43 that the clay represents the seed of men. Whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. We're going to have a little bit more of a look at that in a minute to try and work out what that phrase, the seed of men, actually means. And the last thing that we know from Daniel chapter 2 is that the toes, the feet and toes, represent multiple kings. And we know that it's more than one king because in verse 44 it says, in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the toes, which were mentioned in verse 42, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So there's a few little points that we can gather or glean from verses 41 to 43 of Daniel chapter 2 about this final empire or final phase in the kingdoms of men. But what do the, the, the iron and the clay actually represent? Well, let's start with the obvious one. We, we said that the iron represented Rome. But the problem is, the Roman Empire fell. So, so in what sense can the, the iron from the legs continue down into the feet? Well, to answer that question, we need to have a little bit of a look at the way in which the Roman Empire fell. After its golden era, Rome became too big to manage. With plague, internal division, power struggles, and the ever-increasing barbarian invasions from the north and the east of the empire, together with the overwhelming size of the empire, the cracks began to show. And so in the year 285 AD, Emperor Diocletian decided to split the empire to make it more manageable. This split, however, was only short-lived because within 50 years, the Emperor Constantine, known as Constantine the Great, had again united the empire, this time using Christianity to bring everyone together. Now, I can't stress enough how important that event is in our discussion tonight. 
Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire. And what that did is that throughout the ensuing ages, the ensuing centuries and even millennia, as the military power of the empire waxed and waned, it was going to be the religion of this empire that still held tight the hearts of men and thus exerted the the Roman or you might say the iron influence in the hearts and minds of these people. We're going to trace through the way in which that happened. So it wasn't long until about 100 years until Theodosius, I think it's Theodosius, sorry, I just flicked my page over too early. Yes, Theodosius split the empire again in the year 395 AD. And so there we had, now we've got a, a Western and an Eastern Roman Empire. Well, barbarian invasions continued to affect the Western Roman Empire, and only 15 years after it split, in the year 410 AD, Rome was sacked. And 66 years later, in 476 AD, as you can see there on the screen, the the Western Roman Empire fell. But Rome was not gone forever. The Pope shut himself up in the Vatican. And one Pope came, and another Pope went, and a few hundred years later, the Popes obtained the favour of one of the local kings, whose name was Charlemagne, a Frankish king, who, who had developed his own European empire in the year 800 AD. And in exchange for Charlemagne's military protection, the Pope crowned Charlemagne emperor and he gave him a special title. He called him the King of the Romans. And Charlemagne's empire, called the Holy Roman Empire, remained until the year 1805. So this this Holy Roman Empire would last a thousand years and much of the time it it would offer protection to the Pope over in Rome. Well, meanwhile, over in the East, the Empire continued until the year 1453 AD. The Eastern Roman Empire was governed from the city of Constantinople and it also had its own head of church, the Patriarch in, in Constantinople. Now, the Eastern and Western churches, with the Pope in Rome and the Patriarch in Constantinople, got on quite well together. They shared communion and they even engaged in seven ecumenical councils from the year, from approximately 300 to 700 AD. At these councils, they discussed some of the key doctrines of the church and they, they agreed on most of or all of these primary doctrines. However, In the year 1054 AD, the Roman and Orthodox churches had a terrible split in what was known as the Great Schism. The primary point of contention was the West's or the Pope's claim to papal supremacy. Basically, he was saying that the Pope is the supreme head of the entire church system worldwide. That was all very well for him, but of course the patriarch over in Constantinople didn't take so fondly to this. And so there was this irreparable rift that developed. 
for almost a millennium, for almost a thousand years after this split, East and West wouldn't talk to each other. The Pope remained safely cooped up in Rome, exercising his power in the Papal States and suppressing Western Europe throughout the Dark Ages. Over in the East, the Orthodox Church had quite an interesting time. In the year 1453, the, the city of Constantinople fell to the Turks, and the Russian Orthodox Church, one of the, the subdivisions of the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, over the next few hundred years, decided that it would be a good idea for them to become the chief Orthodox, the, the chief um, division of the Eastern Orthodox Church. The problem they had was that the other patriarchs throughout the Eastern Orthodox Church didn't agree. The patriarch in Antioch, patriarch in Jerusalem, the one in Alexandria, and of course the one in Constantinople, all thought that the patriarch in Constantinople should be the, the head patriarch. When Russia looked at it, they said, well, we have half of the Eastern Orthodox population here in Russia, so we should be. And so these, these tensions developed between the two patriarchs. These came to a head, actually, only a couple of years ago when the, the patriarch in Constantinople decided that he would give the Eastern Orthodox believers in Ukraine their own special uh, division of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And, and so he made a, a patriarch in Ukraine. Well, the, the uh, Russians didn't like that at all. And so what has actually happened only two years ago is the Russian Orthodox patriarch said, that's it, no more communion between Russian and the rest of Eastern Orthodox, or at least the, the Constantinople, Constantinople um, group. And so there's, there's now this schism within the Eastern Orthodox religion. But what about the, the bigger picture? What about the relations between the Pope and Eastern Orthodoxy? After all, there was that huge divide back in 1054 called the Great Schism. Well, as we said before, that remained in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. It wasn't until 1964 that one of the popes, Pope Paul, met with Patriarch Athenagoras, I knew I was going to struggle with this one, Athenagoras, the first of Constantinople, in Jerusalem. A few years later, the Russian Orthodox Church started their own meetings with the, with the Catholic Church. In 1999, about 30 years later, Pope John Paul II visited Romania to, to see the Orthodox Christians there. And then, more recently... In the year 2016, Pope Francis made two very interesting moves. He went to see Patriarch Bartholomew in Constantinople, and they met together in Greece. And then he went to see Patriarch Kirill of Russia, and they met in Cuba. So in the year 2016, Pope Francis met with one half of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the other half of the Eastern Orthodox Church. They won't talk to each other, but they'll both talk to the Pope Francis. And uh, in a most interesting letter 
back in, or just last year actually, Pope Francis sent a message to Patriarch Bartholomew and he said he was uh, voicing his desire for full communion between the Catholic and the Orthodox churches. You may be able to read a few of those articles there on the screen. So we're starting to see this division between the church of Constantine start to be healed. One of them has been called the Roman Catholic Church, the other, the Eastern Orthodox, but both of them came out of this Christian Roman Empire formed by Constantine around the year 300 AD. And now they're starting to heal up their differences. You know, Roman Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy do have their differences, but they agree on most of the fundamental teachings, at least the ones mentioned in the early Christian creeds. And as you've just seen, that divide is getting smaller and smaller all the time. And so we can see a modern-day equivalent of the Roman power or the iron power from Daniel chapter 2. It's really the Roman Catholic Church together, as we've seen, with their Eastern Orthodox counterparts. Now, just think back to our question for tonight. Can Pope Francis, a Roman Catholic, save the EU? Well, we've just seen that Pope Francis represents the head of the Roman power surviving on earth today. We can see the, the Catholic Church in the image of Daniel chapter 2 part of, or as, as that iron forming part of the feet and toes of the image. In fact, it's this Catholic Orthodox alliance which is going to give the strength to the image. That iron Roman influence is going to hold the empire of the last days together. Well, in Daniel chapter 2, we also had clay mentioned. What does the clay represent? Well, verse 43, as we saw before, said that the miry clay represents the seed of men. The iron was going to mix with miry clay and they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. What does this rather strange term mean? Well, simply put, it's it basically means the children of men. Well, okay, how does that help us? If you've got a Bible, just come back one or two pages to Daniel chapter 1. I've got a helpful little clue here. In Daniel chapter 1, we're told that Daniel and his his friends were taken into captivity, and in verse 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, who's, who's taking them into captivity, spoke to Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel of the king's seed and of the princes. So here in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 3, we we have a, a mention of the seed of the king. And over in Daniel chapter 2, we have mentioned the seed of man. So you can really contrast the two. You've got the royal seed, the seed of the king, in contrast to the common seed, the seed of man. This is really just the common people. Now, how, how does that fit into the image? Well, you'll recall, if I just put that on the screen for you for a moment, 
you'll recall that each of those empires, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the, the iron, each of them represented empires governed by kings or emperors, royalty. However, this is saying that the iron is going to be mixed with this common people, with, the, with this miry clay. What do we see today? We certainly see a figurehead in the Roman Catholic Church. There's certainly an unquestionable level of governance there. But the Roman Catholic power is mixing with the common people, with the seed of men to create this empire of the last days. Well, that's very interesting. Can we identify exactly who or exactly what the feet and toes here represent? We know that they're made up of Roman Catholicism and the common people, you might say, but exactly who are they? Well, returning to the image briefly, I'd just like to, to pause and reflect upon its anatomy. You see, in the image on the screen in front of you, the head, there's, there's only one head, okay? And it represents the single Babylonian empire. Then there's the breast and arms, the two arms representing the Medo and Persian, the Medes and the Persians, who formed their coalition empire to overtake Babylon. That was followed by the single belly, the, the, the brazen belly of Alexander the Great as he, as he set out and, and conquered the Medes and the Persians. But then his empire split into two, represented by the, the thighs of brass. We then have the two legs of iron, representing the Eastern and the Western Roman empires. And finally, the feet break into these ten toes, now, you'll recall from our history of, of Rome earlier that Rome indeed was carved into, the, the empire of Rome was carved into a number of different sections by barbarian tribes. And what we've got on the screen in front of you is a map showing some of the invasions of these different barbarian tribes as they came and bit by bit conquered the Roman Empire. What was interesting about these, these tribes is they didn't simply come destroy Rome and then go back home. Many of these tribes came, conquered and stayed. And so what you ended up with was the Roman Empire, but now formed of different groups who had, who had come and invaded parts of the empire and then had stayed and it had even taken up some of the practices of the Roman Empire that they had left for them. And these different tribes came and went at different times in history, but often there were around about 10 attacking the empire. Around about 10, matching up with the 10 toes here. It would seem then that these 10 toes indicate approximately 10 European divisions, all of which are bound together here by the iron. Well, that's very interesting in terms of the fall of Rome, but what do the 10 toes represent nowadays in, in our lifetime because, well, we must be close to the end of the image. In fact, we are very close to the end of the image and I just want to take you now to, to the, the very last part of Daniel's vision here in Daniel chapter 2 to see just how close we are to the end of that, 
of that image and, and to see what follows this progression of world empires one after the other. Well, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, as we started reading before, in the days of the two kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. A kingdom which will never be destroyed and a kingdom that shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. This kingdom, you may recall from back in verses 34 and 35 that we read earlier, was represented in the dream as a stone coming down, smiting the image on the feet and crushing the whole thing to powder. And so you can see, if we go to our next slide there, you can see the stone coming and it's going to hit the image on the feet and then it's going to smash the entire system of the kingdoms of men. Daniel 2 verse 34 Verse 34, it smote the image on the feet and break them to pieces. Verse 35, then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken in pieces together. This is the entire destruction of the empires and kingdoms of men. And what's it going to be replaced by? By a stone that fills the entire earth. So let's then put the vision and its interpretation side by side just so that we can, we can see exactly what the vision means. The stone was cut out without hands and we learn from verse 45 that it was cut out of a mountain without hands. So, so a stone is, is cut out of a mountain but you can't see anyone doing it. It's not a human hand that is performing that procedure. No, it's the God of heaven that cuts that stone out of the mountain and the stone comes and it smashes the image on the feet of, of iron and clay, representing those, those kings, in the days of these kings, the very last period of time before the kingdom of God is set up. And all of the metals were broken in pieces together, representing the breaking in pieces and the consume, consuming of all of the kingdoms of men, says verse 44. And then the stone filled the whole earth. The God of heaven set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and it, would break in, and it would break in pieces all the other kingdoms and stand forever. So very simply put, the stone power represents the everlasting kingdom of God. But every kingdom has a king. After all, Nebuchadnezzar was king of, of Babylon. Who is the king of the future kingdom of God? Well, Luke chapter 1 Verse 31 to 33 answer the question for us. Where Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, is prophesied of the birth of her son, and the angel said to her that he, she would bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, one of the kings of ancient Israel. And Jesus shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Why? Because that kingdom in Luke chapter 1 is exactly the kingdom spoken of here in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. And so that is the conclusion of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. But you know what this does, this vision of Daniel 2, is it forms a framework for the rest of the prophecies 
in, in Scripture relating to the kingdoms of men. And that framework is, quite simply, that there were going to be four world empires forming the kingdom of men. The last of those empires would, would change, go through different stages of change. And then after that would come the kingdom of God. And into that mould or, or upon that framework, we're now going to put two other prophecies, a prophecy given later in the book of Daniel and then another in the book of Revelation. We're only going to, to talk very briefly about them just so that we can click them into that framework and see what we can draw about this last phase of the kingdom of men, about the feet and toes of the image of Daniel. So let's then turn over to Daniel chapter five, uh, 7, sorry, if you've, if you've got a Bible on you. In Daniel chapter 7, I'm just going to choose out a very few verses to explain what's going on. Daniel sees his own vision this time. And in verse 3, we're told that he sees four great beasts come up out of the sea. So you can picture him asleep at night and he sees these four great beasts come up one by one out of the sea. And we immediately have to ask, what do those four great beasts represent? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 17. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. And what comes after them? Well, in verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So the four beasts represent four kingdoms. It says kings, I realise that, but often a king is, is taken for his, his kingdom in Scripture, as you saw back in Daniel chapter 2. So these beasts represent four world empires to be followed by the kingdom of God. That matches perfectly with Daniel chapter 2. And of course, we want to find out about that fourth empire, the empire which was represented by iron back in Daniel 2. We want to find out about that to find out what's going on in the feet and toes. So verse 7 of Daniel chapter 7 says, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth exactly the same as the image. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, just like the, the iron kingdom of Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40. And it was different or diverse from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Those ten horns equate to the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. Well, can Daniel 7 give us any more information about what those ten toes or those ten horns represent? Well, it can, in fact. Verse 23 and 24 provide another comment that we want to take. Verse 23, the fourth, king, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be different from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns on the fourth beast... Out, that, that come out of that kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Ah, so here we have the fourth beast representing the fourth world empire, which were represented by the iron in the legs. They have ten horns representing ten kingdoms. 
In Daniel chapter 2, we said we think the ten toes represent ten different kingdoms. This is confirming it for us. Okay, so from Daniel 7, we know that now the Roman Empire is going to divide into ten different kingdoms. Now please come across to Revelation chapter 17. As we go to the New Testament, we've got to think about what we might expect in terms of prophecy about world empires. Because Revelation's written about six to 700 years later on, and so we would expect not to find anything about Babylon, Medo-Persia, or Greece, because all of those empires are now long gone. And now the, the writers of the New Testament are living in the Roman Empire. So we might expect to find prophecies about the Roman Empire. And in fact, that's exactly what we find. In fact, we find the very beast from Daniel chapter 7 that was used to describe the Roman Empire. And we find it here in Revelation chapter 17. So I've just put Revelation 17 on the screen for you. I'm just going to try and show you very briefly, very succinctly, what this chapter is about. Now, there's two key players who are in Revelation 17. The first is a woman. And you can see I've just coloured in all of the references to that woman in Revelation 17. She's not a nice woman. Verse 1, she's called the great whore. And then in verse 5, she's given a name. Babylon, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. This is a horrible woman. And she's riding on a beast. In verse 3, we find that the woman was sitting upon a scarlet-coloured beast. And again, you can see, references to that beast go the whole way through chapter 17 of Revelation. So we've got a a woman riding upon a beast. Now, I realise this is slightly out of order from my slides, but I want to identify the beast with you. Verse 3, he carried me into the wilderness, Sorry, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-coloured beast having names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. There's no question as to where that's taking our minds back to. This beast has been lifted out of the book of Daniel and placed here in Revelation to show us that this beast represents a power that has come from that Roman Empire. And it's got ten horns. This is the beast of Daniel. Here in Revelation, it's got seven heads, a little bit different to the one back in Daniel, simply showing that this is a different phase of the Roman Empire. Okay, so this woman is riding the beast. What else can we learn about Revelation 17? We know that it's an immoral woman. In verse 2, we see that She has committed fornication with the kings of the earth. This woman is associated with world rulers. She's sitting on the beast, as we saw. She wears purple and scarlet and uh, gold and gemstones. She's called Mystery, Babylon the Great and the Mother of Harlots, and she has killed the true believers, we find in verse 6. Verse 6 says, The woman was drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So this woman has persecuted true believers and has killed them. Okay, what does it all mean? 
Well, if I just get you to hold a hand in Revelation, and if you're able to, just come to the second book of Corinthians. This is a letter which was written by one of the, the key teachers in the New Testament. His name was Paul, an apostle. And he was writing to a group of believers who lived in the, the town of Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and in verse 2, he gives us an extremely helpful clue as to what the woman in Revelation chapter 17 represents. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes to these believers, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the Apostle Paul is saying here that a chaste virgin, a pure young lady, represents the true believers and that she is going to be married to Christ. Now what happens if that young virgin turns away from the true belief? What happens in verse 3 when... So, so Paul says, I fear less by any means... As the serpent tricked Eve through his subtlety, so your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity in Christ. He's trying to get the believers in Corinth to stay attached to the true belief that they've been taught. What happens if they stray from that belief? Well, Revelation chapter 17, they become an unfaithful woman or a great whore. Okay, so... The woman here represents a religious system who has not been faithful to Jesus Christ. Let's see if we can identify who that religious system is. Well, I've drawn a little line between verse 1, the great whore, and verse 18, because actually we don't have to go very far at all. Verse 18 tells us that the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now remember, this is written in AD 96. This is the Roman Empire. This is the city of Rome, which is reigning over the kings of the earth at that time. So here's our first, you could call it a clue, or you could say it's a definite piece of evidence that the woman here represents a Roman apostate religious system. And I suggested on the screen that this is the Roman Catholic Church. Well, this, this church or this woman sits upon many waters. Well, what does that mean? See verse 1? Come, come here, I'll show you the, the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. What does that mean? Again, you'll see on the screen, the chapter tells us. Verse 15, He said to me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And we're going to see in a minute just how far and abroad the Pope, the, this Pope, has gone to spread Roman Catholicism and to, to um, keep his followers in the Catholic faith. So the Roman Catholic Church is certainly sitting upon many peoples 
multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, we saw before that the, the beast had ten horns, meaning that it's, it's a Roman beast from Daniel chapter 7. We also see that it has seven heads, and we're not left to guess about what the seven heads are. Again, we've drawn a line between verse 3, where we're told that the scarlet-coloured beast had seven heads and ten horns. We've drawn a line between that and verse 9, where we're told, here is the mind that has wisdom, the seven heads of the beast are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now remember, the woman, we're told in verse 18, is that great city. So that great city is built upon seven mountains, says verse 9. Now all you need to do is go to the poets of Rome and time and again they mention Rome is the city upon seven hills. There really is no question. The immoral woman here in Revelation 17 is representative of the Roman Catholic Church who in verse 1 sits upon many waters. She has millions upon millions upon millions of followers. And in verse 2, we're told that the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The Catholic Church is involved in politics when she shouldn't be. She should be a religious system. So what's she doing in politics? Well, I'm going to highlight three... Oh, sorry, there's, there's one more uh, little point we want to take away, and that is regarding the horns. So, as we mentioned, there are ten horns in verse 3, and we can draw a line from verse 3 across to verse 12, where we're told very clearly that the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings or ten kingdoms, just like it said in Daniel chapter 7. Now, we also learn something else about these ten horns in, in Revelation 17. We already know that they are connected to the beast, okay, the, the ten horns are on the beast, but in verse, 14, uh, verse 13, we're told that the ten horns, or you could say the ten toe kingdoms, they give their power and their strength to the beast. So these ten kingdoms are going to relinquish their own authority and their own power, and they're going to give it to a greater organisation. Now that sounds an awful lot like the European Union of today. We have multiple nations giving their strength, giving their power to one centralised organisation. But Daniel 2 says, yes, there might be ten toes and they might give their power to the beast, but it's a very fragile empire. It's a great idea, but it doesn't work very well because it's only the religion, it's only Roman Catholicism which is going to hold the whole thing together. So I know that's a, a very fleeting look at, at Revelation 17, but what can we take away from it? Well, there's two main points. Firstly, there's going to be a false religious system represented by the woman based in Rome. Very clear point. And two, she rides on or takes advantage of the, of the European coalition, and she's which is represented by the beast and its horns. So Revelation 17 shows us extremely clearly that Rome, or the Roman Catholic Church, is going to ride upon that 
European base. There's a couple of other things I just want to point out while we're here in Revelation 17, just interest in passing. Verse 4, you'll notice that she's clothed in purple and scarlet. And then, as we mentioned before, there's the, um, the, the whore sits on many waters. Well, look at these two next slides. Here it is, the funeral of Pope John Paul II, and there you have the cardinals and the bishops of Rome dressed in scarlet and in purple, a, a poetic uh, illustration of the prophecy of the Roman Catholic Church here in chapter 17 of Revelation. We also said that she sits upon many waters. And here you've got a list of all of the places that Pope Francis has visited since he came into power in 2013. There is no doubt that this woman of Revelation 17 is the Roman Catholic Church. So how do we bring all of that together on one page? Well, we know from the prophecies that were reviewed that we're in the last phase of the kingdom of God of the kingdom of men, sorry. This phase is represented by the toes of the image and the horns on the beasts. We also know that shortly after the, that phase of the kingdom of men will come the kingdom of God. And prior to that stone power, the kingdom of God smashing the kingdom of men to pieces, we may see a, a further tightening or a binding together of international relations in Europe, at least between some of those countries. And Roman Catholicism, I've got on the screen, will aid, really, will be, what I mean is it will be the, the chief binding force for that empire of the last days. Well, that's what we expect to see from prophecy. What are we seeing in real life? We've already seen that Europe's in trouble. We've already seen that of themselves they are falling apart. And as you can only guess, coronavirus certainly hasn't helped their efforts to stay together. But what's the effect of Catholicism in those countries today? What is the religious bent of the European countries? Well, here on the screen, you've got a map of the spread of, or, or, or the, the distribution of Roman Catholicism throughout the world. And you'll notice that in there, in Europe, there is quite a dense area of Catholicism then if we ask, what about the spread of Eastern Orthodoxy as a religion? We find that that's mostly over in Eastern Europe and up in, into Russia. So that when we put them on the same page, we find that Western Europe is primarily Catholic. Eastern Europe is primarily Eastern Orthodox. And you'll remember from not long ago, those two religious groups, which initially came out of the same Christian Empire are now coming back together to form one Roman iron power. You know, we could really put the two legs of Daniel's image onto that map because Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy are going to work together to keep this fragile empire of the last days together. Is that what we're seeing? Well, we've seen the Pope warn of the the possible consequences of coronavirus on the EU. We can also see the Pope praying for the EU. Just a few days ago, the 29th of April, the Pope said, let us pray for Europe, for the unity of Europe, for the unity of the European Union, so that everyone together might move forward as brothers and sisters. 
He's also actively gone on the phone and he's spoken with French President Macron, one of the, the leading figureheads in the, of, of the Euro European nations, about how to combat the problems associated with coronavirus. In fact, so much of a figurehead has Pope Francis become for leading Europe towards unity that in the year 2016, he was given the Charlemagne Prize. Now, you recall we mentioned Charlemagne earlier as having his own empire in, in Central Europe? Well, the Charlemagne Prize was introduced in the year 1950 and it is given to people to commemorate their work done in the service of European unification. And here is Francis, a figurehead for European unification. But it's not only the Roman Catholic Church. In an incredible joint declaration written and published by Pope Francis and the Russian Orthodox Patriarch, you'll remember that most or half of the population of Eastern Orthodoxy are underneath the Russian Orthodox leader. Pope Francis and the Russian Orthodox Patriarch wrote a joint declaration in 2016 which said the following. The process of European integration, that is, the formation of the EU, which began after centuries of blood-soaked conflicts, was welcomed by many with hope as a guarantee for the peace, for, of peace and security. Nonetheless, we invite vigilance against an integration that is devoid of respect for religious identities. They're saying an atheistic Europe isn't good enough, no matter how united it is. While remaining open to the contribution of other religions in our civilization, it is our conviction that Europe must remain faithful to its Christian roots. That is, you might say, to the universal to the Catholic Church before it split, which is now, as we're seeing, coming together again. The Pope and the Patriarch are uniting together to say, Europe, you need to stay faithful to your Christian roots. We call upon Christians of Eastern and Western Europe to unite in their shared witness for the gospel, uh, to Christ and for the gospel, so that Europe may preserve its soul shaped by 2,000 years of Christian tradition. That is exactly what we've been looking for based on our understanding of the prophecies in the Bible. So can Pope Francis save the EU? Well, the answer is a qualified yes. Francis, or at least one of his successors, will successfully preserve the unification of Europe. What we do not know for sure, however, is whether that will be in the current EU constitution or in a slightly different form. But ir irrespective of exactly how it looks, we know for certain from history and from prophecy that the Pope will successfully hold Europe together. Despite whatever tremors it may face, it will hold it together in preparation for that stone power to come down and to smash the kingdoms of men to pieces, to judge Europe for her corruption, and to avenge the blood of the servants which were killed in Revelation 17 and verse 6, 
by the, at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. And not only Europe and, and Rome will fall then, this stone will break in pieces the entire kingdoms of men and will set up an everlasting kingdom of God. So back in Daniel chapter 2, in verse 44, we'll just finish up by looking at that kingdom to come. In Daniel 2, verse 44, we read that in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. That kingdom is going to be here on earth because the stone filled the entire earth. It's going to last forever. It will cover it will cover the entire earth and it is an invitation for you and I to be there. But perhaps most importantly, in view of what we've seen tonight, we need to look at when it happens. We're seeing that we are well and truly living in the days of the toes of the image. And it's in the days of these kings that the God of heaven will set up his kingdom. Tonight is an invitation for you to be a part of it. To open this book, the Bible that God's given us, his words to us, and to choose. You have a choice to either be crushed with the kingdoms of men and blown away by the wind, forgotten forever and never seen or heard of again, or to accept God's invitation in his word, the Bible.